Welcome to this Asia Global podcast, brought to you by the Asia Global Institute at the University of Hong Kong. I'm your host, Alejandro Reyes, the Institute's Director of Knowledge Dissemination. In our programs here in Hong Kong and online, and in the content that we produce, we focus on presenting Asian perspectives on global issues. Each week, we publish Asia Global Online, a digital journal on global issues. We also release Asia Global Papers, policy research by leading academics and specialists in Asian and global affairs. We regularly convene a Global Thinkers Speakers Series and an annual Asia Global Dialogue, a gathering of business, government, academic, and civil society leaders. Finally, we have the Asia Global Fellows Program that brings to Hong Kong mid-career professionals and policy experts, emerging leaders from across the world for three months of interaction and experiential learning about the region. Follow the Asia Global Institute on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and visit the Asia Global Institute website to sign up and receive our news and information, including the weekly Asia Global Online Journal. This podcast is part of our Meet the Author series, where we have a conversation with contributors to Asia Global Online and other publications of the Institute. Joining me now from Singapore is Dr. Victor Savage, Visiting Senior Fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. He and colleague Christopher Lim, Senior Fellow in Science, Technology and Economics at RSIS, co-authored an article on Asia Global Online that examines the US-China strategic competition and the Thucydides trap concept put forward by Harvard political scientist, Graham Allison. Allison posits that when one great power threatens to displace another, war is almost always the result. Victor and Chris argue that it is not so much about the prospect of a hard war anymore, but of a battle for economic power and influence. They asked this question in the context of COVID-19. Will the pandemic accelerate this arrival of a new Chinese world order, a new geopolitical reality? So welcome, Victor. It's uh, very nice to uh, uh, see you here and you're coming to us from Singapore. Um, I'm wondering if I could just start by asking you about Alison's Thucydides chat concept, because you know this is a really quite in vogue this concept these days. It's gained a great deal of currency over the past couple of years. You are saying that the focus for the battle of these hegemons is really about economics, economic influence and power, if you will, and not about a hard war. But surely it is in the security sphere where the US and China are in increasingly coming to friction. I mean, if you think about the South China Sea, the Korean Peninsula, the Taiwan Strait. Uh, there are many potential uh, security conflicts there. Is not 
the trap set for a hard war just as much as it is for a battle royale over economic and financial might? I'm wondering if you could just go deeper into your, you know, your thesis. Okay, thank you very much, Al, for that introduction. And thank you uh, for summing up uh, Alison's uh, theory. Uh, what we're trying to show is that in Alison's theory, in the 14 examples that he showed uh, with the subsidious uh, particular uh, model, uh, they were all very hot wars that happened in the past. And I think that the time of hot wars has changed a lot, partly because obviously, uh, you know, we have uh, entered a, a, a period of nuclear warheads, which makes wars very difficult for many countries to get involved in because it means their annihilation, uh, not only in one country, but many countries, or for that matter, the whole world. So in a way, it's uh, put a, a damper to basically uh, hot wars between uh, the major five, six hegemons that are around. And what they have done during the Cold War period was to increase these kinds of hot wars in proxy wars, you know, like Vietnam, Korea, Iraq, and all these places. So what we are showing here in this article is that times have changed now, and that countries have a whole arsenal of uh, basically influences and imp impacts on each other. And one of them is obviously the economic aspect. Without trying to get into a hot war, what America is trying to do to China is to break it internally by uh, applying tremendous economic pressure so that there will be an internal revolt in China, either by uh, urban riots and rebellions, etc. What's happening in the U.S. right now? And uh, if that is done, then Xi Jinping and his lifelong presidency will be in great jeopardy. And it might properly, even before you can get into a hot war, uh, the, the Chinese uh, leadership might, might, might buckle uh, under that strain of economic pressure that is being applied to them. And the same thing is done to China. I mean, they are uh, also, uh, while America is applying this economic pressure, it's having a, uh, a backfire on the American economy as well. And, you know, uh, China is now applying a lot of economic pressure on the Americans. And and that's the thing that is worrying uh, Trump because he's got five months more for his re-election. And he might not be re-elected as a result of the Chinese economic pressure because there's 40 million people in America that are unemployed. The whole economy is up in a mess. There are hundreds and thousands of bankruptcies going on. So, you see, without getting into a real uh, uh, war between the two of them, they could easily... Uh, applies so much pressure because now they are basically on the same wavelength. Both are capitalistic countries. There's no more communist versus a, a capitalist because they, China has gone very capitalist. That's why the impact that America is applying can have such a devastating effect on China. If China was a closed economy, uh, capitalism would not be able to influence at all. But because she's been so capitalistic and so open and exporting so much uh, stuff around the world, she's very open and very susceptible to tremendous amount of economic pressure by the American. So, in fact, that brings me to then the question of uh, decoupling. This, again, is another concept that's gained a lot of currency in recent years. 
yeah. is that what, what's happening? I mean, I, I personally am not a great believer that decoupling can even happen. What, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Well, I, I think the Chinese and the Russians are, are trying in a way to decouple the American economy because the American economy is based basically on petrodollars. You know, when they, 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 they made sure that everything that was done in, in terms of the sale and of, of petrol was done through U.S. currency, and that gave them a tremendous lagasse of the world's financial system. But then the Chinese have been trying very uh, much to decouple it and, and make sure that everyone is also seen as an international currency. Uh, obviously, it needs, uh, to a large extent, uh, a global uh, trust in, in that currency, whereas the American dollar is trusted by most countries around the world. The Chinese yuan is, is, is too uh, uh, very flimsy because China is still a developing country, not a developed country, so its currency doesn't have... But the Chinese are doing a lot of things. They're going into all sorts of different uh, 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 systems, uh, you know, uh, e-commerce uh, e system, where you don't have to actually bother about uh, currency. And everything it can be paid straight away back to China. It doesn't have to go to banks, in fact. So they are trying their best to try to shake the American uh, economy by trying to make sure the American currency is uh, destabilized to a large extent. And there are obviously uh, situations now which show the American economy is, is actually uh, uh, fluctuating because of all the issues. Uh, the fluctuation of oil prices, etc. So the Americans themselves uh, uh, have to be worried about this. Um, it's hard to say what the end goal is going to, going to take place, you know. But the, the Chinese are obviously very uh, uh, clear that they want to make sure to move the world economy out of the American Union. And to be frank with you, the American economy is so badly in debt, you know, there's 16 trillion in debt as a result of the tremendous amount of wars they fought since Second World War. And so, you know, they are, they are just uh, riding on the trust that all countries have on them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and once that trust is broken, you know, uh, the economy might just uh, collapse. Well, uh, Victor, Let's talk a bit about your work. Tell us a bit about your current research work, what your interests are, what, what, what sort of current questions you're, you're looking at in your research. Well, I have several different kinds of research that I, I do. I've written several articles on the South China Sea, the geopolitical situation between China and the U.S. in the South China Sea, because that's a very big issue as far as I'm concerned. I believe that if there's ever going to be a hot war, that would be one of the areas that, that would be picked up because there, there no uh, human liabilities would be involved there. The human liabilities would be on, on military people, personnel, you know. Uh, so it is a, a very likely scenario that uh, the South China Sea would be uh, a place of a hot war. So that's one thing that I've been very interested in. I've been interested there also because the China has taken over or claimed at least 90% of the South China Sea. 
and that means it it got involved in a very real way uh, as part of the Southeast Asian region itself. And this made a lot of countries in the region very uncomfortable with it because they never considered part of Southeast Asia. But by claiming 90% of the South China Sea, they have claimed instead of a land territory, the, the countries put together, at least four or five countries, uh, the, the South China Sea claim is more than four or five countries put together. You know? And uh, my other particular areas on, uh, on environment, climate change, I just uh, had an article on uh, the uh, Indian Ocean. Uh, uh, you know, because I think that's a, a very big uh, area where countries could either come together and, and try and see how they can cooperate in terms of uh, mitigating either climate change or finding ways to uh, cope, or, you know, with climate change or adapt to climate change. And there are various models within the Union Ocean communities uh, that can provide insights into this. So that's the second area that I've been very interested in. And third area of which I deal a lot with Singapore. Just finished the book in Singapore, which should be out by uh, July or of, of, no, August or September of this year. And I'm working on another book on Southeast Asia, which deals with uh, uh, folk, folk attitudes towards nature. So what is the I, focus of your uh, book on Singapore? Yeah, well, I, I was, this book on Singapore, I was looking at the way Westerners uh, looked at Singapore in the colonial period. For 145 years, that Britain uh, uh, had the gas over the area as their colonial colony. You know. uh, so uh, I've completed that book, and now we are looking at the editors uh, who are editing the stuff. And, and and hopefully everything will be okay. It's a book that, that, that really looks at different aspects of how the West saw Singapore. Now, uh, tell us a bit about the pandemic experience in Singapore, because I think tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, uh, June 2nd, uh, there will be a bit of relaxation of some of yeah. the uh, circuit breaker res uh, restrictions. Uh, wh yeah. What are your thoughts on how Singapore has uh, coped uh, during this uh, pandemic? Well, uh, there are pluses and minuses. Uh, I think the fact that, you know, we had very few deaths relative uh, to many other countries, I think it's ironical that the three basically Chinese uh, 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 populated uh, polities, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore, had very low deaths as far as the pandemic goes. We've had uh, a much higher percentage of people who have uh, contacted COVID, but they're basically uh, foreign workers. And because most of them are young, they have not had the full-blown uh, uh, aspect of COVID. To a large extent, you know, this idea of, the, of COVID deals with the uh, personal ability of a person's health to cope with it, you know, if he's got a good immune system that he can fight against it. So when you're young, you know, there are very little problems. Most of the people who have died in Singapore, in fact, nearly all of them have been young, uh, elderly people who have uh, had uh, complications, heart, liver, lungs, uh, kidneys, all that, you know. And these collapse 
greatly you know, with a, a, a problem like COVID. So you can see even in Europe, I mean, you know, the Italians, uh, a huge amount of their debts dealt with people that were, were elderly. And they had a system of triage, in fact. They, they, didn't, uh, they didn't give uh, respirators to people over 60 years because they felt they were not going to recover. So it's terrible. I mean, the old people were just uh, allowed to die, so to speak, because of the fact that they were short on, on particular uh, uh, medical facilities. And, and, and this is the problem, I think, you know, when you have this. But I think what you can see is that the, the issue of COVID has shown us that many Western countries don't have uh, the medical uh, uh, facility, uh, medical uh, sort of preparedness for a crisis like COVID. And that's why the, the, the debt rates in, in all the European countries, in Britain and Italy, Spain and America, all that have been so great, you know. And, and, and this shows that they've been riding on a sort of a, a fast, that they had a very good uh, medical system. They actually don't. And, and, and what COVID shows is that we have been very uh, weak on that. And, and, and this is something that we all got to learn, that, you know, uh, that medical uh, facilities from henceforth have got to be really uh, uh, given a lot more emphasis and more uh, care and, and uh, money. Yes. Now, you mentioned that you focus on climate change and environmental yeah. issues. Do you think that uh, COVID-19 will have a significant impact on the global effort to address climate change and environmental challenges? Well, yes and no. I think the fact that COVID has come, it has deflected the, the global attention to climate change, you know, because obviously the uh, issue of COVID is a more immediate issue. Their debts that are taking place, you know, a huge amount of debt. Climate change has got debts, but it's done indirectly. So one doesn't see it to a large extent. People die of malnutrition and hunger and, and thirst and what have you in Africa, but nobody sees it as a product of climate change because you can't really put a one-to-one -one relationship as you can put with COVID. So this is the problem, I think, to a large extent. So in 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 in, in the issue of, of how we're going to solve climate change, climate change is going to be the long-term real, uh, uh, you know, uh, so killer, as it were. There are so many books that have been written on the, the impact of climate change, even on humans. Uh, you know, the, the idea that human beings will not be able to survive uh, this century, in fact. Uh, we essentially where if we don't look, look out, already we've dealt with a huge amount of exterminations of nature. It's a book by this uh, lady who wrote this, uh, the sixth extinction, which shows that we are in, in the sixth extinction of uh, since the world began. And it, it's so colossal that if you wipe out nature, you are invariably wipe out the sort of biological ballast that supports human beings as well. And, and, and that will inevitably come. So, uh, this is a very dangerous situation that we are in, but a lot of people are not paying attention to it. And they're giving all sorts of excuses for it, unfortunately. But it's a very major issue. And, and, and I guess uh, 
once we get over COVID, the whole issue will, I guess, uh, come back again on 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 climate change and and where we take it. Uh, the situation is obviously uh, dire with climate change because uh, most people think that the tipping point, which is uh, given as a ladder 40 years, maybe by 20, 2050, we don't solve or, or don't mitigate against climate change, it would be a situation where we will, no amount of money and no amount of technology can can, can save the earth. The, the issue with snowball, uh, uh, heat waves, you know, uh, rising sea levels, you know, you will have all sorts of issues snowballing one after another. Already, you can see the impact of forest fires, of you know, yeah, heat waves, etc., taking place. Let me let me just close the circle of our conversation. I mean, you say you need this global cooperation, but can we have that kind of global cooperation if you have U.S. China in some kind of uh, intense economic competition or even, you know, a, a hot war, but, uh, you know, uh, yeah. is that even possible uh, you know, to get global cooperation, something as important as climate change? It is possible depending on how you look at civilization. If you look at civilization that is tied to racial issues between East and West, between whites and Blacks, etc., then you cannot get uh, uh, a kind of a global cooperation. But if we look at uh, civilization in terms of what Arnold Toynbee talks about, world civilization, the world is being civilized. All of us are being civilized. Then it's a different thing. We we do things for the whole global community, not for sectarian uh, particular interests, Chinese versus Americans or whites versus blacks and, you know, and as what uh, Huntington talks about, the clash of civilization, that's the kind of school that we have been, that has lasted for the last 2,000 years, this idea of East and West. So we have to come to an understanding that we're all in this together as a community, as a global community, you know, whether you're black or white, whatever you are, you know, Russian, British, uh, Thai, uh, American, etc. you if all of us can come together and understand that the benefits are for all of human beings, then obviously we'll be able to close the circle. This guy, Thomas Piketty, the French economist, he uh, said that the tremendous amount of inequality in the world that really is a major cornerstone of the instability in the world can only happen if there's a world war or a major catastrophe. And what we see now is that COVID-19 has brought the whole world and the whole economy down to zero. We start from ground zero. And if we, from ground zero, are able to build a lasting kind of uh, economic system, global system, we will have a more equitable system. It won't be anymore because the old system has already been totally shattered. You know, um, billionaires and all have, have lost billions of dollars, you know, the whole economy is being shredded out to a level. So we, there are, uh, you know, silver linings there, but it's a question of whether we are willing to take uh, uh, these uh, particular lessons and push them forward, or whether we're still in the old school of racism, you know, 
and 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 class wars, etc. And and thinking that you know I'm this and I I should try and you know keep that for myself, you know. And once you go on that selfish attitude, then there's no way you're going to have a global system of of peace and, and and trying to create that harmony that's so much needed. Victor Savage, thank you very much. That's a very uh, good note on which to end our conversation. Thank you very much for joining us from Singapore. Uh, yeah. I ask our readers to uh, link to uh, to use the link below in the description to read your article, your and Chris Lim's article, and also to subscribe to Asia Global Online. So thank you again very much, Victor. Yeah. And uh, Christopher and me, thank you very much for giving us this opportunity to share our ideas with you and to be able to uh, get our ideas uh, published in your Asia Global Institute. So thank you very much, Al. Great. Thank you very much. Graham Wong and all for making it possible. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks.